We're glad that you guys came to join us this morning. If you're here with us for the first time, uh, I hope you are enjoying yourself. Easter's just ahead of us. We're excited about that. Right now, we're in this series of, on things we wish Jesus never would have said, and uh, it's a pretty interesting series as it's kind of unfolding. Um, we're going to learn a lot of stuff. We've got a few more weeks in this, which is exciting. Actually, you know, we're wrapping up next week. Um, and then coming up here in just a little bit, we've got Good Friday services and Easter coming down the pipe. I'm excited about this for this. Uh, if you know, the reason I'm up here teaching right now is because our lead pastor, Matt, uh, he's on a sabbatical. And so he's taking a little bit of a break from what's going on intentionally to focus on uh, moving us forward, thinking about vision, getting some time with that. We're going to talk about that in a second. But... Uh, he sent me a photo this last week. He wanted to update me on how things were going, and so I decided I would show it to you guys. Uh, this is how Matt's doing, uh, according to, what is it, is it there? There we go. Mm. <laughs> hey, Matt, you got some nice legs, buddy. Uh, no, I, take that off. This, that's gross. That's nasty. <laughs> I don't even know why that's a thing. Why is that a thing in our culture? Check out my hot dog legs, whatever. Um, I promise you that's not him. I'm just messing with him. We always give him a hard time. Uh, we're glad that he's doing what he does. Something that, that we all have to kind of understand is that when it comes to uh, preaching, when it comes to leading a church, Sunday is always coming. It's always moving. It's always there. It never goes away. And it's a good thing that we have Matt on, on our side, that he's helping us. He's moving us. He's he, he's casting vision and pushing us direction. Um, it, he, he's a huge benefit to us, and, and I truly appreciate all that he does. So in this time away, I hope that he gets a wellspring of life because it takes a lot of work to do uh, what he does on a weekly basis. It takes a toll on family, and we can appreciate him, absolutely. So Matt, thank you for what you do. Uh, today we're going to be digging into a section of scripture in Matthew chapter 15. So feel free if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, you guys can flip it open uh, to that. If, if, if you've been with us for a while, uh, this is week six, we've talked about a few pretty harsh things. So um, if you are still remaining in him, if you still have all your limbs, if you stop judging people, if you decided to forgive everyone, if you've learned how to love unconditionally and you're still with us this week, thank you. We are learning a lot about what Jesus is doing and it's very difficult information to swallow. And today we're gonna to tackle a concept of, of what happens when there's silence, when there's nothing. And Jesus has a moment that we're gonna break down in Matthew 15. And as you guys are, are flipping there and, and working through stuff, I'm gonna ask you a question. Anybody, anybody big fans of cooking TV shows? Yeah, you love the cooking TV? My, my wife, she's been watching like the British Bake Off. And so there's always some type of pastry that she's making. And I complain about it, but then like I eat half of it later. So there's something going on that's good with it. But, but last year, my, uh, my family, we decided to watch uh, the Master Chef Juniors. Anybody watch that TV show? Like, right, it just melts your heart when you see all these kiddos that are just passionate about food and about cooking. And, and you know there's probably a lot of craziness to it. Gordon Ramsay, you see like a softer side of, with his team. It's a lot of fun. It's enjoyable, but at the same time, it's taught my, at the time, four-year-old a different couple of rules when it comes to 
uh, cooking. I had woken up one morning. It was, it was early, early morning, and he was already up because he's an, uh, a morning person. And as I'm still trying to wipe the sleep out of my eyes, he grabs an orange, he grabs a, a, one of his little kid plates, and he brings it over to me as I'm sitting on the couch, and he says these words. He says, you have 100 seconds to peel this orange. <laughs> then he lays down on the floor, and he starts counting down from 100. Okay, like I said, I'm still awake, uh, kind of, mostly asleep in the process, and I'm pondering in my mind, okay, one, I, I don't know what's going on. Two, I'm really hungry, and I'm trying to figure out a way to peel this orange for myself and con him out of it in that moment. And three, I had no idea that my preschool four-year-old could even count backwards from 100. And by the time I've processed everything, he's already at like 90. So I've lost 10 seconds. I finally kick it into high gear and I, I, I'm, I'm going for it. And if you've ever tried to peel an orange on a time crunch, it's not an easy task to do. So I start peeling the orange, he's counting down, and then all of a sudden it's like 70, 49. I'm like, no, that's not how you count, <laughs> right? He gets to 30, and the problem is he knows 30 down really well. So these aren't normal seconds. These are like milliseconds, and I'm under a time crunch in all of this. And as I sit there, I'm just going, oh, no, what do I do? I finally, I get most of the orange peeled. I put it, all, I, pull, I peel it apart, put all the pieces on the plate, the peelings. He's one, zero, hands in the air, and I'm doing this number, right? Because that's what you're supposed to do in MasterChef Junior. Um, and, and, and as a dad, I'm thinking in this moment, I'm a rock star. I have conquered the orange today. I can give up on the rest of the day. I'm just gonna sit here all day. And I start running around the room, leaping and praying. I'm like, I'm excited about how awesome I am. And he gets up off the floor. He goes over to the plate. And, and thank you, Gordon Ramsay. My son goes, yeah, you didn't plate this properly. And in that moment of my pure joy, I literally go from a mountaintop experience to the valley wondering, oh great, I'm a failure to my son because I can't peel an orange. But it taught me something in that moment. Is that what we say matters. But how we say it is just as important. What we say matters, but how we say it is just as important. And Jesus is a master of the how that when Jesus unfolds a story, we can see what's going on, we can get a glimpse of how things work, but truly he is the master of the how. And as he breaks down stories, we kind of see from his perspective uh, what happens in Matthew 15, a, a crazy number of directions. We can look at this thing from multiple angles and kind of see how Jesus plays the part in everything that he does. See, it, if you read early on in the chapter, in, in the first few verses, you see a lot of stuff is going on. Jesus is well known. A lot of people are following him. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on water. He's got Pharisees that are always on his back trying to get him into a spot where he's failing and so they can, they can point it out and say, ha ha, he really isn't who he said he is. And Jesus in a moment says, you know what, you got it all wrong. And he's talking to the Pharisees and, and, and he smacks them in the face, not literally, verbally, confrontation with the Pharisees and, and, and the, the disciples, you get, a, you get a picture of their human nature. In verse 12, 
It says, then the disciples came to him and asked, do you realize that you've offended the Pharisees by what you just said? They're not focused on the necessities that they need. They're not focused on the situation outside of how it pertains to them. They're like, do you realize what you just did? Like Jesus, you don't do that. In our culture, these people are well known. They have a lot of power and authority. You don't double cross these kind of people. Jesus, do you know what you're doing? And I wonder in that moment if Jesus just looks at his disciples and maybe he puts his face in his, uh, in his palm. And he's just like, guys, do you get this? And I wonder even in that moment, is he looking at the disciples going, wow, I have a lot of work to do. I've only got a short time with you, but in this moment, I need to teach you something. And the next section of scripture that unfolds is Jesus trying to intentionally take the disciples outside of what's normal to get away from everything so that he can simply focus on some rest because he's been around a lot of people and to focus on some teaching specifically with the disciples because they're in a moment that they desperately need to grow. And that's where we pick up in verse 21. It says, then Jesus left Galilee. He left where he was. And he went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. It says this, and this is where the story kind of takes a shift. It says, a gentle woman who lived uh, there, she came to him pleading, have mercy on me, O son, or O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. See, in this moment of, of rest that they're trying to get away from everything, they've got an outsider a Phoenician woman, a Canaanite woman, who isn't a part of what they're trying to do. And in this moment, we see a very different picture of Jesus. In verse 23, it says, but Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. Wait, what? The... Uh, the son of God who in every moment always has the right thing to say, always knows what to do, always has the right moment of opportunity to make sure everybody learns something. The, the, the son of God in this moment, the one that she's crying out to in this moment is the son of David. All of a sudden, he's got nothing to say, no words. Jesus, you normally have, you have it all together. You've got it all figured out. What's happening in this moment? You ever been there? In a moment of pain and frustration? God, my, my, my family is struggling. God, my finances are a wreck. God, my life is in a bad place. God, how in the world did I get here? My anxiety is taking over. I'm in the middle of a custody battle. The cancer is too much to brave. I can't get out of this hole that I'm in. God, I'm all alone. God, I need you to show up. I am crying out to you as my world is falling apart and I need you so desperately right now. And in that moment, you get a glimpse of her pain as she cries out so desperately and she gets nothing in return. And all of a sudden, the silence is deafening. It's the loudest thing she hears. 
And I, I was wondering, I noticed in the scripture, it, it doesn't say that, that, that Jesus intentionally left her out of the situation. It doesn't, see, it doesn't say that he didn't hear her. It just says that he doesn't respond. And you can learn something very quickly from the patience of the wise. And this is something that you can pull out. It says Jesus is listening and he will respond accordingly. But his response is never determined by our pain. It's in his design. Jesus, sometimes in my pain, the nothingness is deafening. Jesus, sometimes in my frustration, I, I need you to show up. God, when I can't control what's going on, when my surroundings are taking over, when I, I, I'm focused on the wall that's right in front of me that I keep hitting, that I can't get past, Jesus, I need you to be there. We have to understand that in our pain, in our hurt, in our struggles, he's listening and he will respond accordingly. But his response is not determined by how much pain we are in. And sometimes we get so focused on that pain that we lose sight of him. And as the story continues to go on, you see again the human nature of the disciples. It's like they just don't fully understand. They just don't get it or something. Because um, in verse 23 it says, then the disciples urged him, they're talking him to Jesus, to send her away. Tell her to go away. They said, she's bothering us with all of her begging. If the woman wasn't already struggling with something, this is just continuing the hurt. And, and, and we have to give a little bit of grace in understanding that the disciples are humans like you and I. We struggle, don't we? Sometimes it's hard to see somebody else's pain. Sometimes in the moment of their pain, we question why they got there or what's going on in their life to get them to that point. Instead of helping, instead of being there for them, instead of working alongside of them, you gotta remember, they've just dealt with what they said, 5,000 men in the Bible, they fed the 5,000. Jesus has a following of people. And they're getting away to rest and to relax. And to the disciples, they're more focused on their comfort than her discomfort. They're more focused on themselves and what their needs are than her pain. And something that we've got to realize is that God designed, God designed this universe, he designed it with rest in mind. But never at the expense of someone's hurt. I remember on several occasions as a, as a student pastor going to sleep and being excited about my sleep because I enjoy my face and my pillow time and then getting a phone call at two or three o'clock in the morning that says, hey, we need you. I need you to come help me. I don't know what to do. And I've got to be willing to set aside my rest intentionally to help those in need. And the disciples need to learn something here. And, and, and oftentimes I look at this and maybe I think as Christians, we, we kind of get some of it right. We get church right. 
And we, we understand what it means to be a body of believers, but sometimes we leave out the needs of others. I wonder if that's why Paul writes in Romans 12, he talks about a couple things. He gives a warning and he says, don't think that you are better than you really are. And then he tells us to do something. He says, be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. And what I've, I've always tried to understand in this is that sometimes I, I'm really good at being happy with people who are happy but I'm not so good, I probably fit myself in the shoes of the disciples in this moment, when somebody who's weeping, I don't do that. And if I could usher in any conversation to a student in this very desensitized world that we live in, I would tell them this. I would tell them to love and laugh and weep and hurt with those who hurt. Because you'll find Jesus there you'll see somebody's true depravity. And you feel their pain. And you see what they're going through. And you have an opportunity to meet Jesus in that moment. So here's what happens. The story unfolds. The next four verses, uh, it, Jesus kind of comes back into play. It loses the concept of nothingness, and now it shifts gears. You've got Jesus telling the story. You've got her over here listening to him because that's who he's talking to. You've got the disciples who are listening to this moment, and, and Jesus kind of sets them up to fail and learn something, which is a good thing because we can all learn from that. And then on the back side, you've got us seeing the whole story and we get something out of this too. See, in the next four verses, Jesus revolutionizes the thought patterns of, of, of the disciples, of her, and even of us. It breaks down in verse 24. It says, then Jesus said to the woman, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. And I'm sure at this point, the disciples are like, yeah, take that lady. Right? I, 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 like, their motives are really impure. I don't know. You know. The Bible doesn't explain a lot of the situation. It just tells us that Jesus has a conversation with her. And what he says is that I'm here to help the, the lost sheep. I'm here to help the people of Israel. Jesus is saying my ministry is to them first. Your time is coming. And look what she says in verse 25. She came and she worshiped him. Pleading again, Lord, help me. Was this the last time in your hurt, your first response was worship? When was the last time in your pain the first thing that you decided to do was focus on him? Oftentimes we control everything. And in this moment, she hears what he's saying. And she knows and she understands that she's an outsider. And in this moment, she just decides, you know, I'm still going to worship you. She calls him the son of David earlier. She probably doesn't even know the full extent of what that means. But she still chooses to worship in a moment of her pain. And we could learn a lot from what she's saying. And the story continues. In verse 26, Jesus says something that we need to break down. I had students come to me with this, and they don't know how to understand it. Jesus being mean or offensive, but he says, it says Jesus responded. 
It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. Why don't you just pour salt on an open wound? That's what people look at it, but, but I want to make sure that we understand a couple of things. Number one, I will go out on a limb and put myself in the situation to say that I don't think the English language does a very good job at translating this. I know that in the Bible, Gentiles on multiple occasions are considered dogs. It's a derogatory, a negative term, but in this case, Jesus is not calling her that kind of dog. He's, it's more of a concept of from both sides learning something. He, he, it's like a little domesticated house puppy, right? It's not offensive. In fact, a lot of people look at this as like, well, why is Jesus being mean? And if you look at her responses, he's not being mean. She understands exactly what he's talking about. But he, he says, why would I take food that is rightfully the children's and why would I give that to the puppies? Why wouldn't I just allow you to understand that the puppies have their own feeding time, you're gonna take care of them, but this is more important. This is my focus. And, and this is what's crazy. It's from outside perspectives, the disciples are looking at this situation. And as they look into this, they're gonna look at children and, and they're gonna have a little bit more sophistication to their knowledge, to their understanding. They're gonna look at children as Israelites or the Jews, and they're gonna look at the, the dog's concept or the puppies concept, they're gonna look at that more as like outsiders, Gentiles, like this Phoenician woman. And, and she's gonna have a little bit more focused understanding. She's probably gonna, not gonna have the same uh, uh, upbringing that they would have. And so she's gonna just make it plain and simple. To her, it's probably gonna be more along the lines of, of the children are Jesus and the disciples at the table, because he's trying to get away from everything and teach them. And in that moment, she's the dog. And she, she responds in a way that just absolutely blows my mind. And the crazy part about all of this is the way that Jesus kind of manipulates the situation is he is able to teach us something. He is able to help her in her time of need. And he's able to take the disciples and give them a valuable moment to understand the future of what his ministry is all about. See, here's the thing is that Jesus will always challenge our thoughts. There's no way outside of it. And in this woman's pain, you can kind of see how she keeps pushing and she's determined and she gets like an A for effort just because she's trying. And it teaches us something, and most of us have learned this if we've, if we've gone through the wilderness at any point, that endurance will create a new kind of faith in our desperation. That if you live long enough, I can guarantee you, if God gives you more time, enough time on this earth, at some point you will face the wilderness. You will face difficulties. You will face trials. But in those moments, your endurance will produce a new kind of faith in your desperation. And it will change the way you see the future simply because you looked to Jesus in the process. In verse 27, she replied this. Mind-blowing. That's true, Lord. But even dogs are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath their master's table. See, in this moment, she gets it. She realizes that a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of what he has, a little bit of what he can offer can take things far further than anything else in life. 
An outsider who doesn't really know Jesus well, who's heard of him, knows that a little bit of what he can give will go a lot further than what somebody else can give her. And Jesus responds to her. It says in the text, dear woman, in the Greek, it's, it's more of an emotional like, oh, oh woman. How great is your faith? And up to this point, you've got the disciples that are like, yeah, take that. Oh, my goodness, right? And in this moment, it says, your faith is great. Your request is granted. And her daughter was instantly healed. It's like she got exactly what she needed. And Jesus had the right words in the right moment to say to her in that situation. And the disciples are backing him in the process of everything. And ultimately, they're like, yeah, you're, you're not an Israelite. Yeah, you're, you're the dog. You don't deserve what we have. Yeah, Jesus, you, wait, wait, you healed her daughter? That doesn't make any sense. You helped her? But Jesus, I thought your ministry, I thought your ministry was to us first. And this starts to revolutionize a concept of Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. That Jesus' ministry, Jesus' mission, Jesus' concept of who he is, is so big, it's personal. And as we see a glimpse of how he thinks and how he works and how he acts in the midst of this moment of deep, deep pain, we see an opportunity unfold that when Jesus says nothing, he's saying something. And that he's continuing to challenge us. Um, a book that I've been continuing to read through by Chad Veach, uh, it, it's called Unreasonable Hope. It's a beautiful book. The cover talks, it says, finding faith in the God who brings purpose to your pain. Uh, if you know a little bit about Chad, he and his wife have three kids, two boys and a little girl. And this book is all about the little girl. Her name is Georgia. She was born with a very rare disease. Uh, she has seizures for long periods of time. She can't keep food down. And, and the book is all about the desperation as, as a pastor who's supposed to have all of the answers, tries to find meaning and understanding into why Georgia is in their life. And he writes this, he says, Georgia's life continues to reveal the nature of God to me. It's taught me about believing despite the circumstances and trusting and changing my perspective. See, oftentimes when we are in the pain, when we are in the hurt, we don't know where to go. God is trying to teach us something. So I ask you this question, what are you learning in the silence? What are you learning when the silence is the loudest thing that you hear? And this is where it gets personal. I cried during the first service. I'm going to try to hold it in this one. I wish you could have met Amber, 17-year-old, bright, vibrant teenager who had the world at her hands. She was the epitome of 1 Timothy 4.12. In fact, it's on her gravestone. Don't let anybody look down on you because you're young, but set an example for believers in speech, life, love, faith, and impurity. See, Amber, 
uh, was a, an amazing girl. Her mom, Patty, and, and her sister, Kara, they, they literally lived right across the street. So we would always go over to their house and watch movies and, and raid their kitchen and everything else because that's what you do. I was a, an intern at the church. I'd been there for a few years. And I'm sitting at a conference at my college, uh, and, and all of a sudden I see a lot of people walking around the room, and they look like they're trying to find something or someone. And somebody kindly comes up to me in the midst of everything and says, is your name Darren? And I said, yeah, yeah, that's me. He said, can you come out to the lobby real quick? Come talk to me. I thought I was in trouble. I go out to the lobby, and they ask me, are you, are you the intern over at uh, First Christian Church in Grove, Oklahoma? Well, yeah, that's me, what's up? She took this deep breath and her shoulders slumped. And she said, three of your students have been in a nasty car accident. I was trying to figure out what's going on. She, she gave me what she knew. I started calling people to figure out what I could do in those moments or where I needed to be. Uh, I'd never faced anything along these uh, terms. I, I'd, I'd faced tragedy in my own life, but I'd never had to deal with something like this in the midst of somebody else's life. I'm new and fresh, still in college, trying to figure out ministry. And, and I arrive at the hospital, and Amber's in surgery. Uh, the three people that were in the car accident are Amber, and then Chad, who was in the back seat just behind her on the driver's side. And then fast forward four years, who is now my wife, was in the passenger seat. They've been T-boned. And uh, Amber didn't make it. I watch this. Patty, her mom, grabbed my hand and we can go back to see her. And I got a little glimpse of what it's like for Jesus in that moment when I don't have the words to say. I don't know what to do. And we prayed over. And in the pain, I couldn't see what God was going to do in her life. All I could see was my hurt. And she passed, and a week later, they had the funeral. And at the funeral, they couldn't have it at a church because it's a local small town. They didn't have a church big enough. They had it at the community center. Over a thousand people came to her funeral. And because of her life, over a hundred people got life in Jesus. And in those moments, you start to see a glimpse of God's bigger picture. And Chad... He's in the back seat. He's in rough shape, but he made it through. He was going to college at OU, and, and he calls me, and he says, ah, I think I want to go into ministry. I think I want to figure this out. And now he's a student pastor in Oklahoma reaching more lost souls for God's glory. And if I could tell you anything in these moments, Jesus says in John chapter 16, I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome 
the world. And my challenge to you is this. In your pain, cling to Jesus. And don't let go. And don't give up. And don't back down. Because in a moment of desperation, he can do great things. And sometimes it's difficult to see past the wall in your life of pain. But beyond that is a great horizon of things that he could do far beyond any ability that one of us as humans have. So cling to him. Love him. Hold on to him and know that there is a bigger story that maybe you and I can't fully see in those moments. But it matters. Because in those moments of desperation, you've got to be careful. Because the, the frustrations and the negativity, they can rob the joy from your life. They can pull the hope away and it'll put you in places that maybe you and I should probably never go. And Jesus is calling us. And he's saying, you need to try. You need to move. You need to do something. You need to hold on to him no matter what. And I encourage us, as we look at the cross, we see what he's able to do. That if you have pain in your life, that you would seek him and this is what I love about Kingsway. I've only been here for a small window of time. But in that window, I've learned that when people are hurting, this is a community that wraps their arms around the broken. It's who we are. So if you've got something that you need to hash out with God, when they say the thing, take it to the cross, they're simply saying right there to come, to find meaning, to find reason in all of it. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to worship. And if you've got something you need to talk to God about, I encourage you to do so. God, I pray, and I know that you can do anything and everything in our moment of pain and weakness. And God, I tell you this, take it all. I simply want Jesus. You can have all of my joy and my pain. I just want him. God, I give you everything as I'm reminded you gave everything for me. It's in your name I pray. Amen.